what is your go-to response when you are under pressure? The, the best way to answer that question is probably to pause a second and ask someone in the room who knows you really well, how do I respond typically when things go wrong? What, what do you get from me when, when things are starting to go badly? Some of us withdraw and get quiet. Some of us stand up and get loud. Uh, some of us move straight into sort of analysis mode of trying to sort out all the pros and the cons and what the next step should be. And some of us just get discouraged and we imagine worst case scenarios of, of things going from bad to worse. The fact that stuff goes wrong in life has been told to us throughout Scripture at the end of Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is teaching about the wise man and the foolish man. The one builds his house on the rock, the one builds his house on sand. What Jesus says in that passage is that there are storms that are coming. They are inevitable, that that, that house will be shaken in some way, and so it's important that we understand what kind of foundation we're building on. It's not, he says, that your house may be tested if some high winds come along, but rather what he says in that passage is you build your house on either the rock or the sand, on the word of God or on the foolishness of man. And then he says, and the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. He's just speaking in terms of inevitability. These things do happen. If you are not in a season right now that feels to some degree or another like a storm, like there is wind blowing and floods rising, then there is one to come in the not too distant future. Scripture tells us that. Now, we are going to get back to our study in the book of Acts in chapter 5 again next week. But for this morning, I, I want us to look at a couple of verses in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want us to think about go-to response when the storms come. What is our, our first gut reaction under pressure? How do we respond? What do we do? What's the, what's the first level response when those storms come? 1 Timothy, we know, is a letter written to a younger man who was helping to shepherd the church in Ephesus, a church that Paul had been instrumental in, in planting. Uh, Timothy is there now and, and helping the elders there, and he is helping to shepherd the flock in Ephesus. It's a book that's one of three that we know as pastoral epistles. They are that because they are written to these young men, Timothy and Titus, who are in shepherding positions, and it is to equip them to shepherd the flock, to, to pastor in the flock. And there were challenges in Ephesus. We know that the church had been established at this point, but we also know from the beginning of 1 Timothy that there were false teachers that had begun to creep into the church. We know from the background of Ephesus that there were all sorts of worldly influences and pressures that were on the believers. And we could go forward into Revelation chapter 2 and see in some of the warnings to the churches there that Ephesus is singled out as one where the people were struggling to, to, from growing weary, from, from being just wore out by what they were experiencing as a body of believers. And so when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 2, I, wanna, I want us to pay attention to a couple of words of the Apostle Paul as he starts this chapter. And he begins it with the words, I am, I am urging, present tense, I am urging First of all, and so he's, he's about to, to teach Timothy some things that Timothy needs to live out in his own life, but that he needs to model and teach to the church. And so I urge, first of all, here's, here's sort of the to-do list for the local church. I am urging you to teach and apply these things. And this, Timothy, is a first priority. And so he says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, 
verse 1, excuse me. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So Paul starts by urging Timothy to the practice of prayer. I am urging you, Timothy, that you live this, that you engage in prayer, and that in doing so, you model and teach the Ephesian believers to pray supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings for all people. The passage will go on to speak in in verse 2 about kings and all those who are in authority. And so typically, we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2 when we're talking about praying for our leaders, and well, we should, because that's indeed one of the things that's being instructed here. But the, the broader point that the Word of God is making here is to the body of Christ particularly to the the leader of this local church, to be communicated to this local church, I want you to pray. I am urging, first of all, that you make prayer a priority in what you do, praying for all people. There is both urgency and there is priority in that statement. This is something that we are are called to do, that we, we ought not skip over, that we ought not bump down the list of activities that we we should not neglect, we should not forget. We are called by God to pray for all people. If we miss this, we are missing a clear directive of the Word of God to pray. Pray for others. Pray for all of the people that you can possibly pray for. In fact, God's Word here uses four different words to describe just the, the breadth of this praying Uh, supplications, entreaties, the idea of of requesting something, making a request to God, please please help us. Prayers, the, the, the more common word for speaking to God. It's what the early church did when we saw in Acts chapter 4, and they cry out, oh, sovereign Lord, maker of heaven and earth. It's what we see in the Psalms. It's just crying out, speaking to God, praying to him. Intercessions, or another word for that is petitions, speaking to God. Generally, the term has the idea of on behalf of others, I'm speaking for someone, I am pleading for someone, I am seeing the needs and the concerns, the cares of someone, and I am giving petition to God for their sake. Please give peace to this person. Please be at work in this person's life. Please save this person. And clearly is one of those things that he's going to allude to in just a moment. And then thanksgivings. Praising God in all things. Giving thanks in all things as we are commanded to do throughout the New Testament. That we would be a thankful people realizing that what we have is from the goodness of God and what he's done in the life of our church is of his goodness. Paul's point, though, in, in singling out these four things is not, is not to make precise categories that we should sit here and sort of try to, to take these apart and sort of distinguish between each of them and, and understand what each one is precisely so that we include elements of each one. As one writer puts it, the point is that there be an abundance of prayers appropriate to worship occasions and concerns. Paul saying, pray, whether it's thanksgiving, whether it's intercession, whether it's pleading to God, whether it's just calling out God for his qualities, for who he is, identifying those things in prayer, pray, engage in prayer, and uses all of these terms to just stress the the, the multifaceted nature of what we ought to be doing as we gather. And so it is verse 2, I mentioned to you, that says that we pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And 
so just to pause there, he, he does mention kings and those in authority in a very specific way in verse 2. He identifies, pray for all people, including your leaders, so that you gain the benefit of, of God being at work through them. Pray that, that God would save leaders, that God would give wisdom to leaders, intercede for leaders, because that then benefits you as they rest in the wisdom of God. So pray for all men. And in particular, pray for those leaders. But, but then verse 3 picks up, and again, this is now applying to everyone. He has just said for kings and those in authority, but, but this just finishes now from what his thought was starting in verse 1. Verse 3 says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Intercede, pray, Request for, give thanks for, including those in authority, pray for all people. Why? Because he says it is good. God says this is good. This pleases the Lord when we pray for all people. Here is something where God specifically says to us, I desire, I urge you to do this, and this is pleasing to me. Because I desire to save. In fact, he explains, he desires to, to save and for all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. God is, is telling his church, pray for all people. Pray for those within your midst, intercede for them, give thanks for them, but also pray even for presidents and governors and senators, those who might, you might be tempted to disdain because you, you differ from them in some reason, for, in, in some category. Pray for them. Pray for them because God says this is good. It pleases him because he desires to save people. And this is one of the means by which God uses us in the salvation of people that we pray and we plead with God. I quoted Robert Yarborough before. Just one more from, from him. He's a commentator. He writes this. The vast dimensions of God's ambitions for believers and their intercessory role in world redemption. Get this now, the, the dimensions, the broad dimensions of what God's ambition is for us as believers and our intercessory role in world redemption require that the church look to him with large expectations and copious prayerful attentiveness. That's, a, that's an elegant way of saying that, that God desires to use our praying, our interceding for others as part of the life of the church and, and that we ought to come with great expectation when we pray. We ought to come with great faith that God is eager to work through our praying and that he is able to save. And so therefore, copious, abundant, prayerful attentiveness. We should be, as we look at people, as we look at situations, as we see things, it should prompt the go-to response of prayer. It should lead us to intercede and to plead. God says the prayers of his church is something he uses to save people. So we should be eager to be used by God in this way. That we would pray often with great faith for what God will accomplish. A couple weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 4, we saw how the early church practiced this. These are young believers. Certainly they are from a Jewish background, and so they understand the, the habit, the routine of prayer. They've been taught about prayer, and they now carry that into to life in the local church because we see prayer is 
is prioritized in, in Acts chapter 4. There's that circumstance um, that, that shows us that clearly one of the first lessons that the Holy Spirit ingrains in this new church is you can't do this alone. You must pray, pray, pray. And they get that early on. This is, this is church 101 for new believers. You remember the, the young believers in Acts chapter 4 were being threatened with violent persecution. They pray. Acts 4.24, they all lifted their voice together as one and they cried out to the sovereign Lord. They, they thank God for his plan to save a people for himself. They, they, they worship God for being the sovereign God that he is. And then they make supplication. Lord, please deal with those who are making the threats. The, the, the line there in Acts 4 is take note of this, of, of what they are doing, those who are threatening. And Lord, then they pleaded, they petitioned God, give us boldness. Help us as your church here in Jerusalem to be bold in speaking forth the truth. The, the go-to response of the early church under pressure is the same thing that Paul then takes into ministry and is constantly teaching both to Timothy and Titus and to the churches that you must Pray. We see it all over his letters to the churches. He, he frequently starts the letters to the churches with, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. I pray that you would be growing. I, I pray for your understanding of the love of God in Christ Jesus. The early church seemed to be constantly aware of its own weakness. It is as we were just singing just a few minutes ago, Lord, I need you. And that is a, a sentiment that sometimes doesn't grip us the way we should in our, our comfortable credit card driven sort of I've got what I need and I've got fallbacks and I've got plan B's sort of world. They didn't have that. They didn't have the fallbacks and they understood their need and their inadequacy and so it, it prodded them to pray. They believed what Jesus taught that apart from me you can do nothing. Therefore, depend on me and express that. And, and the apostles who taught this to the early church learned this from Jesus himself. We see it throughout the Gospels often. When, when, when there is much going on, Jesus moves away and he is by himself, spending time interceding for his own little flock, and praying for God's work in the midst of them. When the cross was right before him in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed. When he is on the cross, Jesus prays. He cries out to his Father to forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Throughout his ministry, he takes time to pray. The, the Son of God in flesh repeatedly demonstrates to us the urgency of praying, of depending on the will of his Father in prayer. How much more should that be the go-to response for you and I? I? I speak to you on this not as someone who has by any stretch got this. I struggle in this area of, of praying and turning things off and pushing out distractions and reprioritizing and trying to say, you know, this is important and that's important and, and neglecting the fact that this is important. This is the word of God saying, I urge, first of all, don't lose this. And so this morning as, as a church family, we are, we're going to take time to pray. This message is intentionally short this morning uh, for, for the purpose that we could, in just a couple of minutes from now, go online together as a, as a church community and just spend time in prayer 
for our body, for this church, for other churches in our area, that we as a community of believers can pray with one another, just like the early church does in Acts chapter 4. When they see the storms come, they pray. I sent out an email on Friday. Stuart mentioned it earlier. If you didn't get it, and you're listening to this, and right now you're thinking, I'm not sure what this online prayer time is. I missed this email. Um, just email your name. If you want to join us for prayer right now, just email your name to info at gbclorton.com. Just right now, just email it real quick. Give us your name, info at gbclorton.com, and we will send you back a link that you can follow to join us, and we will be coming together for corporate prayer right after this service. We're going to sing another song, and then we are going to uh, just enjoy this opportunity to pray together. You won't be put on the spot. If you'd prefer to pray quietly to yourself, you're welcome to do that. If you wish to pray out loud, you may do that during that time. But, but all we're striving to do here is follow the lead of God's word and follow the model of the early church and cry out with one voice to the sovereign king of the universe, the maker of all things, and say, Lord, we, we need you. We need your work in the life of this church this day. Father, we thank you for your word, for setting before us priorities and teaching us, for showing us in your kindness what, what you desire, what pleases you. Thank you for even describing it in those terms that this is what pleases the God of the universe. Help us to engage well in that time together as brothers and sisters in Christ as we come before you in prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.